1010-993 WBT, hour number three here. And uh, I want to welcome back to the show Matt Harris, my old pal from our sister station, 107.9, and uh, also the host of um, his uh, podcast, Impact of Influence. It's a podcast. He's been doing this now since the Alex Murdoch trial, or the uh, cases, rather, uh, became public. Uh, he and his co-host, Seton Tucker. And uh, you are now down at the trial, right down in uh, Colleton County, Matt? Yep, yep. Well, Walterboro, I am indeed. And Walterboro is not normally the center of the media world. But right. Today it is. Lots of uh, the trucks are out. The court TV's got their set. Nancy Grace is her set. And all the locals have their set. There's also uh, the national news organizations as well. Right. So how... Um have you been able to get inside? How have they been restricting access into the into the courtroom? Um, I am going in for this afternoon session. Seton went uh, last week. We got uh, a press pass that gave out, I think, ten of them, uh, and then it's first come first serve after that. Oh, okay. So are there are a lot of people. I was always it's one of the things I noticed when I would cover trials, especially the 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 highly publicized ones. There were people that would come like almost every day, and they would just sit in court and watch the trial. It was like that was that I don't want to say a form of entertainment, but it was like they were just interested to watch the real court proceeding in the courtroom. Are there a lot of people just hanging out watching members of the public? This is the first day that I think it's been full. Uh, mm. It was on Friday about maybe uh, you know twenty people short of being full, mm-hmm. and uh, I heard today that the morning session was full. Yeah. Yeah, it did, it did seem, uh, just watching on Court TV, it, it did seem that there were more people. I think that we were told at the beginning that, oh, you know, the jury selection might take like two weeks or something. 900 surveys went out and all of this. And then the next thing I know, like within 24 hours or something, they had a whole jury seated. Was that surprising? Uh, they did it like, yeah, it was like two and a half, well, yeah, two and a half days. Yeah. It started Monday, Tuesday, two and a half days. Um, I, I, I didn't find it. I think it was a little earlier than we expected. I thought they would probably go Monday through Thursday, uh, but they did a lot of quick weeding out just from the very beginning. Mm. They sent up the preforms and then what people had asked for and uh, narrowed it down pretty quickly. All righty. So, um, what have, what are you watching? Because I've been following along, uh, sort of like a you know during the day and around my show, but. Um, it, it seems like uh, today you had this uh, what, crime scene investigator from SLED. Uh, I think her name was Melinda Worley, and mm-hmm. um, she was going over all the crime scene photos. And a lot of this stuff is kind of formulaic. You use it to you know get stuff entered into evidence, and then you can talk about it later on as the as the lawyer. Uh, but the idea is you want to get all this stuff in, and you and you could tell where I think the defense was trying to uh, highlight that. They did not take photographs and uh, tire impressions and stuff uh, and footprint impressions at the crime scene the night of the murder. They did not do a good job and therefore cast a whole bunch of doubt. Uh, in fact, he asked her at one point, right, Harputlian asked her, uh, "Is that is, would this be a reasonable doubt? And now he's going to use that in his summation, yeah. of course. He's going to use that. So that was my read. What else have you read into it? She, yeah, she, I think she got uh, pretty much ripped apart by Harputley, and, and whether justifiably or no, I think if you're watching, you're thinking, okay, these guys did not do a great job on this scene, and Dick Harputley was able to, he's the defense attorney, of course, he got to be able to work in, uh, like, okay, there could have been two shooters. Right. Uh, is it possible Paul got shot, and then 
uh, Maggie comes around the corner and surprises somebody. And then the other person, because there's two guns, so the other person shoots Maggie. So the intended victim, he's laying out, he's going to lay out a case that Paul was the intended victim. And he could, any number of reasons. And he was able to get that in was, was huge. I think that the, the prosecution, I just talked to an attorney who he thought the prosecution getting in the guns, like the physical guns that they took from the Murdoch house just to lay them on a table. Yep. He thought they, sh- they shouldn't have allowed that. He surprised the judge because it could have been just pictures. But now you have these shiny objects, all these weapons. It's getting in the, get in the juror's head. But, right. Uh, yeah, so I think there was a, a lot of the, the, the missed footprints. There was a footprint in the feed room. There was a footprint on Maggie. Uh, they did not process the footwear treadmark uh, appropriately. So I, I think there was a lot of, lot of doubt shed. And, so, and also I think they're going to try to work in that they did not get the what they did not check for blood in the drains uh out at the kennels and i think the prosecution is going to argue that alex murdoch was uh was too clean because he he hosed himself down after the murders and then disposed of all of the stuff and then went to his mom's house and then came back and and uh pretended to be surprised and you know they made this point i think last week that you know why would he have or uh, why would he be so clean had he checked for pulses on these, you know, gruesome corpses, how did he come away with no blood on him at all? Which I think is a fair question, but I don't know if that's, uh, I don't know if that's undeniable proof. Right, and I wouldn't be surprised if you had uh, Arpulian bring in some people who are first responder type people to say, hey, we've checked pulses and on crime scenes and we didn't get bloody or something like that. Some sort yeah. of expert versus expert versus expert kind of thing. Um, but yes, I I think that did resonate, though, that if he'd helped them out. But what I'm confused about is they they want to say our bootly and, and, uh, and the others say change clothes. Now, the shirt's not going to get in. The shirt that they tested doesn't look like it's going to get in, but that had blood spatter on it or something. So if the other's saying that shirt he was wearing when he shot him, if there's spatter on it, so that means he wouldn't have changed. So which is it? prosecution did he, did he change clothes or did he not change clothes mm-hmm. they also the uh, prosecution also when you mentioned the uh the firearms there's a shotgun and there was the um the ar-15 and uh, which they apparently keep okay. referring to as the 300 blackout but it's not that that's the ammo that was in the gun and i thought this is uh, like this is circumstantial but this is pretty compelling that you find a box of the exact same bullet, make, model, like all, it was a 147 grain weight, uh, S&B, 300 blackout ammo. It was in the AR-15, and he bought three of them, uh, and so, and two of them are missing. Uh, the one that's still in the house has that ammo in it, uh, and now you got the, the hunting rifle as well, and the prosecution's argument at opening was that they were killed with family weapons, which, mm-hmm. like, how, how is, how are they victims with family weapons if it was a hit against Paul by somebody who was mad at him over the boating accident, right? Right. Well, and uh, the siren's coming down. Are they coming for you? Yes, I think they are. Speak quickly um, before they get you. Yes. The, uh, the uh, gun situation, uh, Harpootley laid it in the opening statement that Paul had, was irresponsible with the guns. He's lost a bunch over the years. Right. He just lay them, lay them around all the time. So the missing gun is he's like well it happened it's no big deal uh because he's lost them before so i think he's going to try to set that up with some of his friends and that sort of thing um 
de facto, one of the sled officers, or Colleton County officers, I'm not sure which one, was testifying about the ammo, and uh, they asked him, so how do you, how, you, how did you know that that was the 300 blackout? And he's like, well, I, I use the same ammunition. Mm-hmm. So the, to me, it struck me as, okay, but it's not that weird that they, they had 300 blackout in the house, they had 300 blackout in the gun, but this Colleton County Sheriff is like, yeah, I used 300 blackout. Right. Right. If that's right. If that is it. Now, have they gotten into the um, did they go into the shotgun ammo? They have not done that yet. Right. OK, so we heard it was birdshot and buckshot. Oh, OK. Well, yeah, that's that's different. But so if you um, if you are uh, it's one thing if it's only the AR ammo, if it's both of the ammos, that makes it less reasonable that you got two different guns that just happen to show up at their site you know, using the exact same, because, I mean, the, the, the 147 grain, like, the, the weight of the ammo is different, too. It's just like that would be a really big coincidence if the exact same ammo was used in both of these guns. But the other, you know, like, one of the things I always keep in mind, too, in, in trials like this is just because, and this is the prosecutor's argument always, which is just because the plan was a bad plan doesn't mean it wasn't the plan, right? People make People make bad plans for murder all the time. Right? Yeah. And so, like this idea, oh, I'm going to use two guns. If he's doing that in order to throw off investigators, mm-hmm. um, but then doesn't, you know, doesn't dispose of them uh, appropriately or whatever, like that's, I don't know. Like th- just because it was a bad plan doesn't mean it wasn't the plan. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And who knows if, if I think one of the things they might bring up is the fact that it's, it's just a hunting land. This is people walk around from their house to the dog pen with a shotgun. You know, it's not like you have to. To use two guns, you have to go really hunt them down. It's very possible that there was a, a, a shotgun that just sat by the dog kennels all the time. Mm. You know, because they're, they're 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 hunting and they're also walking from the house to the to the dog kennel or driving there. There could be, you know, animals uh, up up around there, and or also in their little like the gators or whatever. You know, yeah, yeah. They'd have guns on the back of those things. Right. Uh, so, uh, so what time? Uh, so they're in a break right now. What time do they reconvene? Two forty ish. Okay. All right, so well, I appreciate you spending your uh, your lunch break with me, if this is your lunch break. I appreciate that. <laughs> thrill. All right, so you want to keep doing this? Uh, is this going to look like it's yeah. going to be a standard time? We can kind of get our yeah. updates, because we've been running through every day. So if it's good for you, it'll work for me. Perfect. Perfect for me. All right, brother. I appreciate it. That is Thank Matt you. Harris. You can catch his podcast. It's called Impact of Influence. Uh, he is uh, the co-host along with Seton Tucker. Oh, and by the way, uh, Matt and Seton, they're going to be filling in for Brett Jensen uh, on February 9th and 10th. Uh, from 7 o'clock to 8 p.m. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. Uh, yeah, so we'll chat with Matt every day. You like how I did that on the air, too, so he can't say no. Hey, you want to come on every day this time? Um, no, we'll work around his schedule, obviously, because when you're covering trials, you just don't ever know. Sometimes they they push through or they come back early. You just don't ever know. But uh, it's good to have somebody down there because you get it. It's always different. Look, I watch and monitor a lot of meetings, you know, government meetings and stuff. And I'll, you know, I've, I've been watching court TV, and I, but you you don't get to see everything. You don't get to see the little uh, facial expressions of the people that aren't on camera. You don't get to read the room when something happens and what, you know, what, what's the, the vibe? What's the mood? What's the mood? <laughs> That's always the question. It's a running joke in 
Have you ever seen these videos? I'm trying to remember what they were. There was some sort of like a parody organization that would go out and basically, not photobomb, but they would prank news media. Like, got a bunch of media. Like, this would be a perfect event for it, right? You got all these media people that are all out covering some trial, and so they got all the news vehicles parked out there and all the, the, the live shots set up and the cameras and everything. And, um, and this, this prankster group would show up, and they would, they would pile out of the van. There would be like seven or eight of them, and they're all wearing, you know, trench coats with the press fedora hat on, and they got masks on, so they all look the same, and they got fake microphones, and they're running around, and they're saying, what's the mood? What's the mood? What's the mood? What's the mood? And that's all they keep asking everybody. It's just a, a prank group. But that question is always, once I saw this, this prank, like, that's so true. That is so true. It's always the question. What's the mood? It's, I, I hate the question now. Anyway, um, but you do get a read of the mood in the room um, when you're actually present at a trial like this. And there's a lot of stuff that happens offline. Uh, like he was saying, he was talking to a lawyer that was watching the trial. And they've got insight. They're watching the trial, and so they have insight. That's valuable. You would talk to people during the—you could talk to sometimes like you would be out in the hallways, and you went, you get on the elevator, and you find yourself talking to the family of the suspect or the, or the defendant or the victim or something. And it's always kind of weird, too, because I was always like try to be respectful. Like, I'm, I'm not going to sab— uh, or uh, ambush you rather in the in the elevator at the courthouse um and the charlotte mecklenburg the old courthouse where the trials used to be they only had one elevator and no stairs it was stupid anyway um now they fixed that at least they got a new building so you've got a bunch of uh, testimony that occurred today in the murdoch trial sled agents investigating the gun room um the day after the murders and they found, you know, boxes of this ammo. Uh, this was the SNB 300 blackout ammo. And they found an empty box with the ammo. Now, I don't know why you keep an empty box if you've got more of the ammo, right? Why would you not just throw it away? But maybe they didn't care. They're lazy, whatever. I don't know. But an empty box. And that's the same ammo or the casings rather that were found at the murder scene those were the the casings for the um for the ar-15 that was the ammo for the ar-15 that was used to kill maggie then there is the uh oh and it was the same weight 147 grains um and then there was the the shotgun which is uh, they're getting ready to uh to bring that into evidence uh confirming that they you know, they found only one rifle in the gun room that would be able to fire those bullets. That's it. But remember, the, for the AR-15, uh, Alex Murdoch bought three of those weapons over the course of time. He bought two of them initially. He bought one for the, his oldest son, Buster, and he bought one for his younger son, Paul. And then Paul lost his. Because Paul leaves guns in cars, people steal them. Whatevs, man, I don't have to care. So he didn't, he wasn't a responsible gun owner. So, as you do with all responsible gun owners, is you bought him another gun. The same exact kind. You know, it's this fully kitted up 
uh, weapon, and it's got the night vision on it as well. That seems kind of important, right? I mean, for hunting, yes, obviously. You want to go out there and shoot feral hogs and stuff, but the night vision also would make it easy to track down a human, shoot them in the back as they're running away, which I'm sure is what the prosecution is going to argue that Alex Murdoch did when murdering his wife and that she was farther away. This is the other thing. Why would he use two guns? Well, she's running away. She's farther away. And so the shotgun is not going to reach her. It's not going to be accurate at that distance. And so he takes the other firearm. He uses the shotgun up close, which, by the way, I I still need. I, I was going to ask Matt this. I'll ask him tomorrow, um, because to me, the construction of the timeline using the cell data, to me, I think that's going to make or break this case. All of these other things can help corroborate, help support the theories of the case. I don't think, though, I don't think that you can get beyond the reasonable doubt standard unless that timeline puts him at specific places and says, look, you think this guy was able to, you know, do this, or the defense would say he could do this and then hose off, get in the car, drive up and come back, whatever. But if they start finding cell phone pings and stuff all over the place and you can construct this timeline where, in fact, he didn't leave when he said he left and he didn't spend as much time up there at the other, at his parents' house uh, as he said he did, then they got a real problem, right? Um, I also noticed during the uh, in the YouTube channel for the Court TV feed, it's always amazing to watch the people who watch these shows or these trials on the TV. You watch the people who are watching and the stuff that they're talking about. Like you could tell a lot of them know each other. They've been watching probably a lot of trials together on these YouTube channels. So there's a little community there. And they had so they had a, uh, a state law enforcement officer. I mentioned her earlier. I think her name is uh, Worley. And she was going through like the, the bullet trajectory and the – um, the photos of the footwear and, and they, they didn't take any um, any impressions of the tire tracks and stuff. And they're like, oh my gosh, they're just questioning her. The longer they keep her on the stand, the less likely they are to win because she's boring. <laughs> like this is the, this, these are the things people say. And this is also sometimes how the jury thinks. They get bored and they stop listening and you lose them. And you could lose the case for something like that just because some witness got boring. Anyway, we'll have another update on the Murdoch trial tomorrow. <music> News Talk 1110-993, WBT. We'll go over some uh, messages regarding the crime topic. We covered most of the... Most of the program talking about Tyree Nichols and the uh, five uh, Memphis police officers that beat him to death and have now been charged. Mike says, Pete, you are 100% right. Okay, I'll just stop reading that uh, message. That's fine. No, uh, he says, making this part of the conversation is what everybody else would do if they really wanted to solve the problem. This was in reaction to the piece by um, Van Jones over at CNN who says that we we should have a a nuanced discussion. It's time for a more nuanced discussion about how police officers, what do you say, uh, uh, the discussion of the way police violence endangers black lives. But 
you know, police violence endangering black lives, he says, can't just be looked at through this this racial prism. As in the black cops and white cops, because it's all a system of oppression. That's the idea. Like, this is the argument they're now making because this story so blows up the narrative. Rather than rather than addressing the story as simply what it is, right, which is a a police department that has obviously not been hiring people or training them well or something, right? Like, there are reasons why this happened. But there are also just bad people. There are bad people, and they are going to be bad people in every line of work, in every industry. Um, I think Charlotte Mecklenburg Police Chief Johnny Jennings said something very similar. You're never going to have zero. This never goes to zero unless you get rid of all police officers, in which case we have seen the results of that, by the way, which is that you end up with more violence, more homicides. And the people who tend to be the victims there are black men. That's what's been occurring in cities that have uh, that have been reducing the penalties. They've been seeing the increasing uh, the you know, increasing in the um, in the homicides and and other you know violent street crime. Um, let me see here. Here it is. I remember when I first moved to Columbus, Georgia, back in 1996. They were already looking to drop the four-year college degree requirement for their officers way back when. Um, yeah, and that's what apparently these, uh, or two of the five Memphis officers, uh, they, got into the, um, they got into the department after they had reduced the standards to qualify. Um, oh, hang on a second. I'm just reading another email. I'll get. To, I'm going to get back to that. Um, at Patriot Girl says the solution seems simple to me. Whatever your color, if you don't want your child to be killed by police, start raising them right. Well, and it's not just it. This is why, and I think we have now adopted this in North Carolina, right? Where they they have now implemented as part of the DMV driver's ed classes, I should say, at the schools. Part of it is how to interact with law enforcement when you are pulled over, and I've been advocating this for years. Which is like when I get pulled over. I pull over at a safe place, right, where the officer is going to have enough room to pull their cruiser in behind me, right? I pull over, and I put the car in park. I turn the engine off. I then roll down all the windows, and I turn on the interior uh, lamp. And then I put my hands on the wheel. And as soon as the officer comes up, either if they say something, you know, do you know why I pulled you over or whatever— I, I try to say either before he says anything or in response to his or her first question to me, I say, I want to let you know I am a concealed carry permit holder and I am armed. The gun is located on my right ba- or my right hip or it's in my glove box or wherever. And I tell them that right out of the gate. That's the standard. And then they ask me, do you know how fast you were going? I say, absolutely not. I was blinded in a horrible accident. I cannot read speedometers any longer. And then they're like, why are you lying? And they take me out and they beat me up. No, I'm kidding. But they, the, no, I, it, like since, okay, since I have been older now, I, I have, I have stopped lying. I do know how fast I was going. I actually set my car at cruise control for nine miles an hour over the speed limit. So yes, you got me. I was going, I was going 64 and a 55. 
because I set my cruise control for it. And I tell them that. And then I get a ticket, <laughs> although I didn't last time. So that was several years ago, several years ago. Well, probably like six years ago now. Uh, but yes, how to interact with law enforcement. And it's not just for the citizens to know it, so the cops know too. Because if everybody is going through driver's ed and we're all taking the same classes, then we should all have a similar expectation of how that interaction should play out. And if somebody starts veering off the script, everybody knows it. Everyone, and there's a passenger in the guy's car, right? When you get pulled over and like uh, the cop says, hey, uh, would you mind shutting the engine off? And your response is, screw you, copper, I'm not doing that. And everybody else in the car is going to be like, uh, okay, we're probably going to get tased here, <laughs> right? This idea that you got pulled over and, and people interact with law enforcement, like they have a chip on their shoulder, and there are a lot of law enforcement officers that act like they got a chip on their shoulder too. I don't have an answer for it. I just, I think consideration and respect is probably a good place to start. I don't know. Um, Pete, uh, your caller uh, earlier in the show has been to too many diversity trainings. Trust me, I know I work for state government. Nobody deserves to be beaten to death uh, like Tyree Nichols uh, was. And from what I have seen, however, society needs to dive more into who is committing the offenses and why. Well, yeah, well, uh, which offense is the cops or the um, or the, the people who are committing crimes? Right. Look, the data is clear and it's not a matter of oh, white people aren't just getting arrested. The data is clear and it has been for a very, very, very long time. And by the way, um, this has also been true of certain white populations. You know, who has some of the highest violent crime rates among ethnic or, or racial demographics? White folks in Appalachia. Don't know why. Yeah, there's a, um, there's a whole book. I'm trying to remember who wrote it. It's a, he's a, but he's a famous criminologist guy, and I read the book, and I interviewed him years ago. It's called the, uh, the, 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 yeah, the Rise and Fall of Violent Crime in America. And he talks about there are these different demographic groups. They have higher incidents of certain types of violent crime. And, and people who study this and have been studying it for decades, they don't know why. There are, there are theories. They take guesses. They're like, oh, well, maybe it has something to do with, like, the Scotch-Irish coming over. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I, I'd be racist or something. And I could say that because I'm Irish. So we got that, like, but this idea that, that there's a cultural norm that existed from somewhere else or developed over time, and that then becomes the norm and it's acceptable. Um, that exists. Why would that not exist in all sorts of other demographics? Why wouldn't we as a society seek to find the best success formula and then tell everybody growing up in our society, this is the success formula? Why shouldn't we do that? Doesn't that seem smart? Doesn't that seem like the best way to position the future society for success is by telling them, hey, we have you know hundreds of years, thousands of years of experience. We weeded out all the bad stuff. Like, for example, probably not a good idea to go up and pick a fight with somebody who looks much stronger than you because then they'll probably beat you or kill you. Probably not a good idea. Here's another idea. We're giving away free education. You should probably get that education and you should probably not have kids before you get married. And you should probably have a job and you do those things and you won't be in poverty. 
Maybe we should tell people that. Maybe we should drill that into their minds. Maybe we should start rapping about that. Maybe we should start doing movies about that. I don't know. I'm just spitballing here. News Talk 1110 WBT. All right, so I got an email here from Wit, who has a theory of the case, the Murdoch trial. He he says uh, that uh, Alex is covering for his oldest son, Buster, because the younger brother used the older brother's ID to buy the booze that they were drinking when they wrecked the boat, when Paul wrecked the boat. So the boat accident begins to unravel things. Mom was protecting Paul or was killed in a panic because she saw what he had done. That's just my theory. So that's an interesting theory of the case. Maybe she came around later. But so all right, the question there is like, would you, would you believe that a, a you know, a, a shotgun blast close to the house was a normal thing to hear, so you wouldn't worry about it, but then maybe she comes down or maybe she walks over and maybe whoever it was that killed Paul didn't think there would be somebody else there, didn't know Mom was still there, maybe thought Mom went off to uh, uh, with, uh, with Dad to see Grandma. Um, regarding the empty cartons of the ammo in the, in the gun room, uh, Chris says, Pete, I often keep empty ammo boxes. They are good for consolidating loose rounds or bulk ones from cases. I don't know what that means for the case, though. That's a good, uh, that's a good piece of information. Uh, regarding interacting with law enforcement, Stan says, taken into account, we have a constitutional right to not incriminate ourselves. Where and or how do you draw the line when communicating with them? If you challenge them right out of the gate, it might not go well. Right. No, again, you argue your case to the judge, not the cop. And usually what happens, and cops will tell you this too, they that generally what happens is people think, you know, that they can somehow tantrum their way out of going to jail. And once it becomes obvious that they're going to jail and they don't want to go to jail, they get angry. And some of them then say, oh, I need to go to the hospital. That's a common one, too. So they don't have to, because they think if they go to the hospital, then for some reason they won't end up in jail. But they do. So if you're, you know, if you've done something and the cop is like, you know, I'm placing you under arrest or he's asking you questions and you think you need a lawyer, then go ahead and say, I need a lawyer. Right? If you've done something and you know that the cop is sniffing around and he's about to bust you, then yeah. Go ahead and say, I would like to talk to a lawyer, in which case then you're going to take a ride downtown. Now, if you didn't do anything and he's asking you questions and you still don't want to answer the questions because you think he may be trying to pin something on you, then, yes, uh, probably go and say, I need a lawyer, in which case you are still going to go downtown. You're going to have a lawyer and then they're going to interrogate you and then you're going to probably, if they have enough evidence, they'll charge you and then you're in front of a judge, right? So, again, like this is the process. People think that they can somehow or another legalize their way out of uh, out of some sort of investigation right there with the cop. And I got to tell you, most often it doesn't happen that way. It just doesn't happen. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you have a constitutional right to not self-incriminate. Absolutely. But when the cop says, would you mind stepping out of the vehicle? And you say, yes, I would mind stepping out of the vehicle. I'm guessing they're going to, they're going to probably tell you to get out of the vehicle at some point, right? 
because they've it's already progressed past the point where they can just have a conversation with you while you're still in the car. If they've pulled you over for reckless driving, as was the Nichols case, which I don't believe I, there's no evidence to suggest that he was recklessly driving. I don't know what precipitated nobody does. That's part of the problem here. Nobody knows what actually precipitated that stop. Why so many cops had surrounded his car initially. We don't know. It wasn't on tape. Now, maybe some information comes out and we'll find out. Um, let's see here. Uh, Dan says the video clip from Chris Rock. Yeah, yeah says it all. Uh, the, the language in the clip makes it less airworthy than a 737 Max. It's still funny and true. Yes. Uh, years ago, the philosopher Chris Rock uh, gave an instructional video on how not to get beaten up by police. And it was some pretty sound advice, right? It was, you know, don't be driving around with weapons in the car, particularly if you are a convicted felon, right? It's a good one. Maybe don't be driving around with music blaring, shattering windows of every vehicle you drive by, you know, thus alerting everybody to your presence while you are a convicted felon with a gun in the car. And then probably don't get all angry and start yelling at the cop for pulling you over for having the loud music because, of course, you are the convicted felon in the car with the gun, which he will probably find because you start cursing at him, and now he's mad at you, right? Helpful things like that. Um, got a, uh, It's a Pete tweet. This is from Big B. Pete, great show as usual. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Just wanted to say that I spend my work day trying to show families the best ways to become good citizens. But you would be amazed how resistant families are. It's almost as though the parents don't want their kids to have a better life. There is the, and this was uh, also brought up in J.D. Vance's book, Hillbilly Elegy, which was about, uh, you know, life in Appalachia up in uh, what Northern Kentucky, Southern, Idaho, uh, Southern Ohio. And, uh, he called it the, the the crabs in the bucket, right? Where you throw the crabs in, and if they all work together, they could all get out. But they don't. When one crab starts to climb out, the other ones reach up and grab it and pull it back in. And there's a mentality that exists. In fact, J.D. Vance talked about how uh, after the book came out, he would go around and he would have people doing work inside inner cities with uh, with uh, black youth, and he would they would encounter the exact same dynamic that exists in many parts of Appalachia among white people. So it's not a racial thing. It's a human thing, right? In Appalachia, they called it too big for your britches. Like, oh, you're getting too big for your britches. Oh, you went away. You left us. That's why I said when Madison Cawthorn left that seat out in western North Carolina and he tried to run in Tim Moore's backyard, that's why he really lost. People in the mountains do not appreciate that one bit. One bit. All right, that is a wrap for today. Thanks for listening. I appreciate it. We'll see you tomorrow. Don't break anything while I'm gone.